Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But... Only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual assault, and self-harm that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 17-year-old Jordan Atfield cracked open another beer and laid back on the couch in his friend's trailer. He'd been crashing at Jeremy Steinke's place for the last few months. He knew he should get his own apartment, but didn't see much reason to rush. Jeremy's mother wasn't home very often, so there were no real grown-ups around to bother them. Jeremy always had beer and pot, and he shared them both freely. It was a sweet setup. The only problem was Jeremy himself. It wasn't his love of dark music or his interest in supernatural phenomena. Jordan liked that stuff too, but Jeremy always took things a little too far. Jordan once saw him cut his hand and then happily lap up the blood like an animal. Still, putting up with a few of Jeremy's quirks was better than paying rent. Jordan picked up the phone to call his buddies over. But just before he dialed, he heard a voice on the line. He realized Jeremy was already talking to someone, a girl. She was pleading with Jeremy, asking him to kill for her. Jordan heard Jeremy reply, I'll think about it. Jordan quickly hung up the phone. His stomach turned. He'd probably had too much to drink. All of a sudden, living with Jeremy didn't seem worth it. Jordan frantically wondered how quickly he'd be able to move out and if he'd be able to leave without getting on Jeremy's bad side. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, 
we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This week, we'll talk about Jeremy Steinke, a troubled high school dropout from Alberta, Canada. In 2006, 23-year-old Jeremy seduced and preyed on a rebellious 12-year-old girl. Canadian law prohibits the media from publishing her name, but many journalists refer to her by her initials, JR. JR thought Jeremy was the love of her life. When her parents forbade them from seeing each other, she and Jeremy began to plot a way to be together, no matter the consequences. Next week, we'll discuss the violent crime that destroyed JR's family and stunned the community. We'll also talk about the investigation and high-profile trial that followed. Jeremy Steinke had a difficult start to life. Raised in Medicine Hat, Canada, he grew up with alcoholic parents who were physically abusive. After they divorced when he was seven, his mother, Jacqueline May, remarried twice. But Jeremy later said his mother's second and third husbands were even more violent than his biological father. The torment followed him everywhere, even when he left the house. At school, Jeremy was regularly targeted by bullies. One former classmate said, he had a hard time in school. I felt sorry for him. Another remembered, he gave me the impression that all he wanted was to fit in and he tried hard to achieve it, but it only made it worse for him. Before I continue with Jeremy's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Jeremy was diagnosed with depression around 1996 when he was 13 years old. His mother said he once tried to hang himself and constantly told her that he wished he was dead. He was also diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder or ADHD. Some experts have found a link between hyperactivity disorders and criminal behavior. Dr. Susan Smalley, a behavioral geneticist and researcher at the University of California, Los Angeles, has said that those with ADHD are more likely to have other personality disorders, such as conduct disorder, which is linked to antisocial behavior and criminal activity. Though not all individuals with hyperactivity disorders are at risk, Smalley emphasized the importance of intervening and providing services to children when they are young. But given his family's financial struggles and history of substance abuse, Jeremy didn't have that kind of support. Instead, he was left consumed with anger and darkness. He later said, I've had twisted thoughts in my head since I was 13. I'm sadistic-like. 
As he got older, Jeremy searched for solace in unhealthy places. He began drinking to the point of passing out, abusing drugs, and engaging in self-injury as a teenager. He also dropped out of high school in the 10th grade around 1999. With little structure or support in his life, Jeremy looked for love and acceptance wherever he could find it. Sometimes it came from adolescent girlfriends. As he got older, Jeremy's acquaintances noticed that he seemed to date younger and younger girls. There was even some speculation that he impregnated his 17-year-old girlfriend when he was 20, although this accusation was never proven. Jeremy seemed to target younger teenage girls to boost his own self-esteem. By the time he was in his early 20s, many of his peers had moved away, obtained jobs, and gone to college. Jeremy still lived with his mother and had trouble finding steady work. He spent much of his time hanging out at the mall or in his room posting poetry online. Women his own age might have judged him for lacking ambition, but teenage girls didn't seem to mind. As the years went by, Jeremy continued to be mired in self-doubt and sadistic thoughts. In 2005, the 22-year-old became drawn to goth culture and extreme metal music, which he felt helped him express his emotions. He liked to dress all in black, accented with heavy black eye makeup and a black mask that covered the lower half of his face. He spent many of his days with friends at the Medicine Hat Mall. Among this crowd, Jeremy was popular. They described him as sweet, caring, loud, and funny. It was here that he first got to know JR. Unlike Jeremy, who lived in a shabby mobile home near the airport, JR was from a well-kept residential neighborhood about 15 minutes from the mall. She lived there with her parents, Mark and Deborah, and her eight-year-old brother. They were considered to be a nice, upstanding family. Their next-door neighbor said, I never heard a harsh word between the mother and father. They enjoyed spending time together, taking motorbiking trips and playing backyard baseball in the summer. They were the typical family, but for JR, that was the problem. For much of her childhood, JR was a quiet, studious Catholic schoolgirl, but like many preteens, she developed a defiant attitude towards authority in middle school. This shift in behavior coincided with rapid changes in her physical development. By the time she was 11, she looked much older than her actual age. Many guessed her to be at least 15 or 16. JR's early development may have had a negative impact on her psychological health. Dr. Ellen Selkie, an adolescent medicine specialist at the University of Michigan has said, from a social standpoint, girls who develop early tend to be treated like they are older than they really are. Sometimes that means they might hang out with older kids to try to fit in, but that also means they could be involved in things that they aren't really mature enough for. That sense of not really belonging can lead to mood problems and acting out. JR embraced her mature appearance, claiming to be 15 in social media profiles. For her, being a mature teenager meant breaking away from the conventional suburban world she grew up in. She embraced alternative interests that may have seemed like counterculture to her parents and neighbors. 
Like Jeremy, she got into hard rock and heavy metal music, piercings, tattoos, and Wicca. In the summer of 2005, as JR prepared to enter the seventh grade, she felt right at home with the goth teens at the Medicine Hat Mall. She spent most of her time there. As JR and her friends left the mall food court, they debated on what to do next. It felt like one of those boring summer days where nobody seemed to have any good ideas. Finally, someone suggested the arcade and they made their way there. JR was rummaging through her pockets for coins when her friend nudged her and pointed out the handsome blonde guy walking over. JR felt a little thrill when he came up to talk to them. They didn't really know each other, but she'd seen him before. He was friends with one of the other girls in her group. He said his name was Jeremy. Even after he left, JR couldn't stop thinking about him. He was good looking and funny. He had a lot of energy. He was always making people laugh, entertaining his friends. Everyone seemed to love him. JR could tell he was older, but she didn't mind that. Her last boyfriend was 16. Guys her age were boring. Older guys understood her better. JR felt elated when Jeremy returned after a minute to join them at the arcade. She didn't know much about him yet, but she knew she wanted to be his friend. JR and Jeremy's relationship stayed platonic at first. At the time, he was seeing another woman. He even said they were engaged. JR also had crushes on a few of the other guys in their circle of friends. She perhaps wasn't in a rush to date anyone. But over the next few months, JR and Jeremy kept running into each other. On weekends, they both regularly attended punk concerts at local venues. They grew closer in the fall and winter of 2005, meeting at the mall, at concerts, or chatting online on the social networking site Nexopia. They also both had profiles on a goth website called vampirefreaks.com. As they got to know each other better, Jeremy thought they would make a good match. He liked that she was interested in Wicca, he boasted to his friends that he had met an actual witch. Jeremy himself had an obsession with lichen mythology, sometimes telling people that he was a 300-year-old werewolf and part of the lichen empire. Perhaps, Jeremy felt bound to JR by some dark supernatural energy. Then, in early 2006, Jeremy's current relationship ended, badly. He messaged a friend to say he wished he could kill his ex because she was too stubborn. Still, he seemed to move on fairly quickly. He set his sights on JR, perhaps thinking that a vulnerable preteen might make a more compliant girlfriend he could easily control. Jeremy endeared himself to JR, grooming her to fall for him. According to FBI agent Kenneth Lanning, for many predators like Jeremy, Children make ideal victims. They are naturally curious, easily led by adults, need lots of attention and affection, and are seeking to establish independence from their parents. JR wanted to be a grown-up, and Jeremy made her feel like one, showering her with attention in the process. JR later said, He was really sweet and attentive. I really liked him. 
but she knew her parents wouldn't understand, and it wasn't long before JR's new infatuation drove a wedge between her and her family. Up next, JR rebels as her parents try to set boundaries. Now, back to the story. In February 2006, 23-year-old Jeremy Steinke pursued a predatory relationship with a 12-year-old girl with the initials JR. Jeremy later said he didn't know JR's age. She often described herself as older in social media profiles. He claimed to believe that she was around 16, which still would have made her seven years younger than him. But ultimately, he didn't really seem to care how old she was. She, likewise, didn't know Jeremy's exact age, but she knew he was older and that was part of his appeal. JR considered herself mature beyond her years and she wanted her relationship to reflect that. She hated being treated like the child she was, which made her home life intolerable. Her parents' rules were not particularly unreasonable for a girl her age, but JR resented having any restrictions at all. She loathed when they imposed a curfew or criticized her clothing. JR's parents had disapproved of her previous relationship with a 16-year-old boy. They'd be furious if they knew she was seeing an adult man, and JR grew to hate them for it. It wasn't just her parents. Her younger brother bothered her too. He was a goofy, active eight-year-old boy, labeled a class clown by his peers. He was funny to other kids, but to JR, itching to grow up, he was just irritating. One of their father's co-workers, who met the children at an open house, later said, it seemed like she was almost embarrassed for her little brother. JR may have even behaved violently toward the boy. Jeremy later said he once saw her throttling him. JR was so filled with anger towards her family that she told a school guidance counselor that she wanted to go into foster care. She repeated, I hate it there. I hate it there. JR envied Jeremy's adult life without supervision, without a family constantly imposing on him. Sometimes Jeremy would pick her up and take her to the mobile home where he lived. They'd watch movies or listen to music, the same kinds of activities she did with her school friends. But with Jeremy, it seemed like a reprieve from what she felt was an oppressive home life. As JR became increasingly infuriated with her parents, they in turn grew more frustrated with her. Both Mark and Deborah frequently complained to friends about JR's troubling behavior. They thought it was nothing more than typical teenage rebellion, but it was still creating constant tension at home. One night, JR's parents went out to dinner and instructed JR to babysit her eight-year-old brother. Instead, JR went out with friends leaving her brother home alone. When her parents found out, they grounded JR indefinitely. She was furious, later saying, I wanted to keep having fun, disobeying. While she was grounded, JR was rarely permitted to leave the house. 
This made it difficult to see Jeremy. However, she took any opportunity she could to sneak out and meet with him for a quick rendezvous at the bus stop or mall food court. She wasn't supposed to talk on the phone, but she did so anyway, waiting until her parents were asleep to call him. They spoke nearly every night. They crafted fantasies of running away together. They dreamed of traveling to Europe and living in a castle. JR told Jeremy that she'd like to marry him. Jeremy, in his twisted version of romance, responded by gifting her a vial of his own blood to wear on a chain around her neck. As their relationship went on, JR's school friends grew concerned. Jeremy was too old for her. One friend was open about her disgust, writing on one of her social media pages, I hate Jeremy Slimeball. But JR refused to listen. She insisted that she was in love and that their relationship was nobody else's business. Perhaps her parents' and friends' disapproval only made Jeremy more attractive. The more others disparaged him, the more he seemed like forbidden fruit. The concept of forbidden fruit is tied to the psychological theory of reactance, which was pioneered by psychologist Jack W. Brame in the 1960s. This theory explains why people react negatively when someone tries to tell them what to do. Brame hypothesized that people have an innate need for freedom and they become resistant when their freedom is curtailed. When a person is forbidden from engaging in a certain activity, it makes that activity even more desirable. Perhaps Mark and Deborah understood this. Draconian parenting tactics didn't seem to work on JR. They only made her angrier. Instead, her parents suggested she see a therapist. In the late winter of 2006, JR agreed to attend several family counseling sessions. Her parents thought the sessions had a positive effect. As a reward for her improved attitude, they loosened some of their restrictions and told her she could attend a concert at the local community hall, as long as they accompanied her. On March 17, 2006, Mark, Deborah, and JR went to the show together. JR met up with some of her school friends there, and in between sets, they wandered outside for some fresh air. Standing in front of the venue, JR ran into Jeremy. She said, he picked me up and swung me around. He was really happy. JR broke away from her friends and followed Jeremy into an alley. They began kissing. But as the music started up again, her parents noticed that she had been gone too long. They went looking for her. As they circled the block calling out for her, Deborah stopped in front of the alley. She saw JR and Jeremy locked in an embrace. Deborah didn't recognize Jeremy, but she knew he was no seventh grade boy. When Jeremy realized he'd been caught, he bolted from the scene. Deborah and Mark were furious to learn that she was secretly seeing a much older man. They regrounded JR. They banned her favorite music confiscated her makeup and beauty products and forbade her from using the phone or computer. She wasn't allowed to go to the mall or see her friends for at least a month. JR later said, 
I was under quarantine. It was like I was under house arrest. They took everything out of my room except my clothing and my bed. JR paced around her room in a rage. It was humiliating to be yelled at in front of all of her friends, to be treated like an infant. Who did her parents think they were? They were trying to break her, to show her how powerful they were. It was like they didn't even love her anymore. They didn't care how she felt. They only cared whether she obeyed their every command. They'd be better off with a robot instead of a daughter. JR felt a burning hatred. She couldn't let them get away with it. She'd get back at them somehow. She'd show them they couldn't control her. Only then would she be free to make her own choices and be free to choose Jeremy. Although JR's parents took away her access to the internet, she found an easy workaround. Instead of messaging Jeremy at home, she used computers at the library or community center to reach him. On March 20th, JR sent Jeremy a disturbing message. She wrote, I hate them, so I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. Jeremy responded, Well, I love your plan. Jeremy and JR's online exchanges grew more personal, more intimate, but they longed to see each other in person. In late March, JR tried to sneak out of the house to meet Jeremy, but her parents caught her. She tried again a week later. While her parents slept, she snuck into the basement and crawled out of a window with a broken screen. She left a pair of pajamas on the front porch to change into when she returned. Then, she walked to a nearby bus stop to meet Jeremy. He picked her up and drove her to his mobile home. His mother wasn't around, so they were totally alone. He led 12-year-old JR into his bedroom. They watched a movie together and snuggled in his bed. According to JR, they then had sex, which means Jeremy committed statutory rape. The current legal age of consent under Canadian law is 16 years old. Prior to 2008, the age of consent was 14. At 12 years old, JR wasn't legally capable of consent, even if Jeremy believed she was older. JR knew that it was illegal for Jeremy to have sex with her. She later expressed worry that he would get into trouble for it, but she felt obligated to have sex with him anyway. She later said, I thought it would make him happy. I knew he wanted to have sex with me. Afterward, Jeremy drove her home. JR quickly changed into the pajamas she left outside. When she entered the house, her parents woke up, but she told them she had had a nightmare and had just stepped outside for some fresh air. JR could tell they didn't quite believe her, but apparently they let it slide. She returned to bed now guarding a disturbing new secret. The covert nature of JR's relationship with Jeremy was part of the allure. It made their connection seem more intimate and exciting to her, but it likely also contributed negatively to her mental and emotional well-being. Social psychologists Daniel Wagner, Julie Lane, and Sarah Dimitri 
explored secret relationships in their 1994 paper, published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Dr. Wagner wrote, Secrecy appears to form a social bond of considerable strength, one that may be the basis for an individual's attraction to and preoccupation with a partner. It may even be that prolonged secrecy in the face of prying or otherwise difficult audiences could yield agitated mental states bordering on obsession. For JR, being with Jeremy was becoming an obsession. The thought of them running away together was a dream she'd do anything to fulfill. Jeremy had successfully manipulated a child and preyed on her naivete. The only question was how far he'd go to prey on her further. Coming up, Jeremy and JR plot a deadly scheme to run away together. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 2006, 23-year-old Jeremy Steinke lured 12-year-old JR into a sexual relationship and committed statutory rape. According to JR, Jeremy convinced her that they were in love. JR wished she could leave her suburban home life behind to live with her older lover, but she knew her parents would never let that happen. According to JR, around April, she and Jeremy began talking frequently about killing her parents. JR felt they had to die in order for her to escape them. She knew that if she ran away, her parents would send the police after her. They wouldn't let her go without a fight. At this point, JR was grounded and wasn't allowed to talk to boys on the phone, but she would regularly sneak into the basement after her parents went to bed to have whispered phone conversations with Jeremy. The two of them weren't subtle about their planning. JR sometimes confided in her friends how much she hated her parents and how she wished they were dead. But her friends reacted with horror rather than the sympathy she'd hoped for. At one point, while hanging out on campus, they overheard JR talking with Jeremy on her phone. She was asking him to help her kill her parents. One friend later said, I walked away because I didn't want to hear anything about that. Although they were frightened by JR's threats, the girls didn't think to report her disturbing comments to an adult. In a paper released by the Department of Justice, Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, authors David Finkelhor and Richard Ormrod noted that juveniles are less likely than adults to report serious crimes. To account for low reporting rates, the author cited adolescent concerns about personal autonomy and fears of being blamed or not taken seriously. And JR's friends didn't want to take her seriously. The thought of murder was too much for the 12-year-old girls to handle. They hoped that if they ignored the situation, it would go away on its own. But JR remained fixated on liberating herself from her parents' rules. Without encouragement from her school friends, JR leaned all the more heavily on Jeremy. He fueled her anger toward Mark and Deborah. He said it wasn't fair that they locked her up. He seemed eager to help her out of her situation. The idea of killing them made him both nervous and excited. 
Jeremy couldn't stay quiet about it. He often complained to his online friends about JR's parents and casually made threats against them. In response to Jeremy's gripes, one friend replied, tell her parents to shove it. Jeremy retorted, we were thinking more along the lines of killing them. He added, the best part is it was her idea. On another occasion, Jeremy was smoking marijuana with his friend, Grant Bolt. As they got high, Jeremy asked, how far would you go for love? He told Grant that JR was pushing him to kill her parents. He worried that she'd break up with him if he failed to follow through. He asked if Grant would consider helping him as he didn't think he could do it by himself. He told Grant, I need someone I can trust. Are you in? Grant wasn't interested, but he did give Jeremy a copy of one of their favorite movies, Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. In the film, young lovers played by Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis go on a killing spree, starting with the abusive parents of the female lead. The movie was based on the true story of 18-year-old Charles Starkweather and 14-year-old Carol Ann Fugate. Grant later said he didn't mean to encourage Jeremy by giving him the movie. He thought the film's violence would dissuade him. Instead, it thrilled Jeremy. Thoughts of murder were still on his mind towards the end of April 2006. On Saturday, April 22nd, Jeremy had a couple of friends visiting. They smoked marijuana and drank together, going through a case of beer and a bottle of vodka Jeremy's mother kept in the freezer. His friends noticed that Jeremy seemed to be brooding, but he refused to open up about the reasons. Around 9 p.m. that night, Jeremy left the trailer and drove to visit another friend, Jordan Atfield. Jordan had crashed at Jeremy's mobile home until recently before moving across town. Jeremy arrived to find Jordan and his roommates watching a movie. He took Jordan aside and asked if he would help him kill JR's parents. Disturbed and not certain whether Jeremy was joking, Jordan responded that he didn't have it in him to kill anything. He asked Jeremy to leave. Jordan was extremely bothered by the encounter. He later said, it scared the crap out of me. Rejected by Jordan, Jeremy angrily returned to the party at his trailer. He called Jordan back and threatened to kill him and everyone in his apartment if they went to the police. Jeremy's friend overheard the angry phone conversation and didn't know what to make of it. But once Jeremy hung up, he seemed to calm down. At around 10 p.m., he put on the movie Natural Born Killers. As they watched, Jeremy became more and more animated. He made comments throughout the film, comparing the on-screen action with his own plans. In a scene where the characters drown someone in a fish tank, Jeremy remarked, JR doesn't have a fish tank. His friends began to get scared. They told him to stop talking like he was going to kill JR's family. He replied, if you can talk her out of it, I won't do it. After the movie, his friends went to sleep on the living room couch. 
Jeremy retreated to the bedroom and spoke to JR on the phone. Back at her place, JR was filled with nervous energy. It was after midnight, but she was wide awake. JR clutched the phone, trying to keep her voice below a whisper. Now would be the worst time to wake up her parents. She needed them asleep and vulnerable. On the phone, Jeremy sounded even more nervous than she felt. He asked her if she was sure she wanted to do this. JR was sure. She didn't know why he even had to ask. He had to understand that there was only one path forward for the two of them. If they weren't in this together, then the world would tear them apart. She couldn't stand the thought of that. She loved him too much. The pain of losing him would crush her, perhaps kill her, and there was only one way to avoid it. It meant losing her family, but JR knew she would gain so much more. She smiled in anticipation when Jeremy told her he was on the way. After JR spoke to Jeremy on the phone, she lingered in her bedroom, anticipating his arrival. Around 2 a.m., Jeremy left his friends asleep at his place and went to visit another acquaintance who had more drugs. Since he wasn't able to convince an accomplice to join him on his plans, he needed something to give him extra courage. The dealer and his girlfriend recalled that Jeremy did several lines of cocaine. They perhaps snorted more than six lines each. They then offered Jeremy some ecstasy and more alcohol. Jeremy stayed at the dealer's apartment for about an hour, then drove to a convenience store to buy gum to cover up the smell of smoke, which JR didn't like. After this purchase, he snorted two more lines of cocaine in his truck. He later said, I was off like a rocket. Finally, just before dawn, Jeremy drove to JR's house. He crept onto her lawn and stood under her bedroom window, throwing a pine cone at the house to get her attention. JR appeared behind the glass. She pointed below her. Jeremy could see the basement window with the broken screen, which she'd previously used to sneak out of the house. This time, Jeremy used it to sneak in. Once in the basement, he pulled a knife from the pocket of his sweatshirt. It was time for Jeremy Steinke to prove his love. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Jeremy Steinke and JR's story. We'll talk about the gruesome murders of April 23, 2006, and the perpetrator's attempt to go on the run. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>